I was right there too. My, if blood triples, triples, triples. If blood appears on my sweatshirt or shirt, let me know, please. Man, that just orange juice. I got baptized in orange juice this morning right before service. It was awesome. Simon, you ready to rescue me? You've got my sermon notes. Can I have them? I never put it on my iPad. I just realized. Good morning. So I'm going to do something. We're going to start this way. Uh, a traditional greeting in the church on Easter Sunday morning is to say, He is risen, and then the response is, He is risen indeed, which many of you who come from a, a church background or even a liturgical background, thank you, Simon. Um, he's my backup guy. Hope I can read all that. It's tiny. Um, so that's, that's what they do in traditional churches, and we're not a traditional church. We are a Pentecostal, non-traditional church, except for one of these things. I mean, I love this part of Easter because it's like this declaring of what we believe happened, of what we have faith that happened. And as for us believers, it builds our faith to declare it out loud. And for people who don't believe it, it's a statement of what we do believe to them. So I would like to do this with you. And if you believe it, I hope you will wholeheartedly shout out, he is risen indeed. Okay. So I'm going to start it with this. He is risen. He is risen. He is risen. That's right. He is risen indeed. It is one of the greatest biggest parties of the year for the church. And, you know, like we go to this transition from music to this, and I'm still kind of in this hyped mode. And it's not just because I'm like all amped up on orange juice, baptisms, and screeching speakers, but I am amped up on the resurrection of Jesus because it's one of the most unbelievable things in all of history, one of the most incredible miracles ever to happen. And it's alive in me this morning, and I hope that it is alive in you. And I hope that it will come alive in you if it's not. So, all right, resurrection of Jesus. Awesome. You know, and actually, I, so this is required. Okay, here, you ready? This is required for Easter Sunday morning on April 1st, 2018. All pastors around the country are doing this right now. The resurrection of Jesus is the single greatest event in history in my book, but it is also the greatest April Fool's joke ever. Right? I mean, who but God could pull one over on death itself, right? You know, death's like, oh, we got you. And he's like, April Fool's, you know, and it's like, oh, you got me. Good one, God, jeez, now what? All right, that was required. It was gratuitous, and it had to be said. All right, open up your Bibles with me, if you will, to Matthew. We're going to be looking at chapter 28. Um, if you have one of the blue uh, Bibles, there's baskets back here. If you don't have a Bible and you would like a paper Bible, just raise your hand and one will magically appear for you. Um, somebody will grab one. Look, there's somebody right there. There's a hand. All right, we're going to pass a few of them around. We're going to be on page 487 in those books. Um, and we're also going to have it back here on the screen for you in a few minutes. So while you're going there, while you're turning and flipping and looking and you know internet searching to that spot, uh, and Please, on your phones, just keep it right to the Bible, okay? No, no Snapchat, you know, unless you're like, look at my pastor, isn't he awesome? You know, you can put that out there, I suppose. Um, so while you're going there, I'm curious, how many people this, in this room have seen, many of you have, I know, so it's, I'm, I'm like looking for 100% participation here, Doug, right? This is, this is one of those test answers that everybody gets right. How many of you have seen our don't give up signs? There they are, 100% participation, all right. Now, how many of you were touched by that message, any one of those messages in some way? Just raise your hand. I mean, all, I, me, I put both hands up. Uh, we're touched. It's interesting, the response that we've received from those signs. Um, we've just wanted to put them out there. We weren't out to draw a crowd on Easter Sunday. We weren't out to collect a bunch of extra people. We really just wanted to 
encourage our city, right? We just wanted to speak this message. Don't give up. You're not alone. Your mistakes don't define you. You are worthy of love. We believe that these are Jesus messages, right? These are things that we believe Jesus would actually say if he was alive and with us, walking right here, right now, in this very moment as a physical human being. This is what he would say. Don't give up. You're not alone. We're here. The reaction to the signs has been really interesting because they've touched people, some people that were really literally ready to give up on life. They've touched people that were ready to give up on lots of other things, like a run. You know, that's not hard for me. I get to the front door and I'm like, oh, back to the couch, right? But other people that are out on a run, they're headed up that darn hill up State Street and they come past Audrey and Kelly Fontaine's house and there's those four signs and they're like, I can keep going. I can make it to the top, you know, and they just keep running. There's people that needed the encouragement to not give up on a marriage, on a paper they were writing. There's even people who didn't really feel like they needed any specific uh, encouragement for any specific reason, but for some reason they felt lifted up just by hearing those words, don't give up. We all really need this encouragement. I think somewhere deep down inside of us, we have these little voices, these little voices that speak to us in those moments, you know, even moments of triumph and moments of success. We have this voice that says, yeah, but... Yeah, but. You guys know the yabbit voice? It sounds like a rabbit, but it's not. A yabbit? It's a yabbit. The yabbit. You know, you think you're doing great, but look at all your mistakes. You think life is going well, but look how it's worked out in the past. You think you're making a difference, but you're really not. You're just one human being in seven billion. What difference could you ever make? You don't really matter all that much. Yeah, they say they love you, but do they really? I mean, why should they? Look at, look at your past. Look at what you've done. And you know what? You may not have these major mistakes in your life where you're like, oh yes, I did this and I should be in prison, but I'm not. It's like little things, a thousand little things, a thousand little pinpricks that bleed us to death of our hope and of our encouragement and of our faith, our faith in God and our faith in ourselves. The belief that God actually made us for something more than who we can just be all on our own. The belief that what we're doing actually matters. And so we've all really needed these signs. And, and I don't know about you, but those voices that come into my head, they don't just work on the variations of these signs. They, it's way more creative than that, right? Just, you ever notice how that voice in your head seems to know exactly, exactly which discouraging message you need to hear in that moment? It just comes in, it tailor makes the song just for you. And there it is, and it's rolling in your head, and it's counteracting everything that you see that seems to be so good. And that's why these signs, I believe, that we have around town and in this room are so very powerful. Because they come at the moment of need. You're just running along in life, you know, you're not even thinking about the song that's going on in your head. You're not thinking about the good or the bad or the ugly, and boom, there it is. Or you're in this moment of despair and you're this ready to give up and, and here it is. It says that somebody out there cares. They care enough to put a plastic sign in their front yard telling me not to give up. Telling me not to give up and so maybe I won't. Maybe I won't. But as powerful as these signs are, can you just imagine? Imagine what it would be like if these messages really came alive in each one of us. They really came alive in your heart in such a way that you didn't need that road sign. That you didn't have to have that plastic sign in somebody's front yard. That you were just going along and that discouraging message came in, but that sign was in your heart. Don't give up. Don't give up. You matter. 
You are worthy of love. Your mistakes don't define you. There is more. You can be more. You can move past this. I really think that that's what happened at the resurrection. Is that Jesus became a yard sign for the world. That there is hope beyond the grave. That there is life beyond our death. That there is life beyond the thousand little deaths that we experience every day of every moment of every life. When we experience failure, pain, broken relationships, sin, that Jesus' resurrection stands as a, a yard sign that says don't give up. And here's the beautiful thing about it. Because of his resurrection, that story can transform you and me in such a way that we have these yard signs in our heart and that we become yard signs for one another. That we become the message of encouragement for each other. Don't give up. You think this is reserved for a pastor's role, right? Because I get to speak each Sunday. I get to, you know, nearly every Sunday it seems like. And I speak and I share and I say these things. But you too are the messages of hope in this world. You are being resurrected to new life. So that's why we have lots and lots of little signs sitting in these seats all around the room right now. You are the yard signs of hope to this city and to this world. And I want to tell you why. So usually on Easter Sunday, we just read the resurrection story, and we're going to do that. If you're, a, if you're an Easter Sunday sort of guest, you come just on Easter Sundays, you've heard this one story repeatedly. Um, but you know what? I think it's probably the best story in the Bible, honestly. So we're going to read it again today, and then we're going to go backwards a little bit and, and look uh, beyond that. So we're in Matthew chapter 28. Hopefully you found your place there, um, and it's going to be up on the screen behind me if you haven't. And I'm going to start at verse 1, and we're going to read through verse 7. So this is how it happened. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, it's kind of strange how it says the other Mary, it's Mary, the mother of Jesus. <laughs> it's like, we'll just go to downplay that for some reason. I don't know why. So Mary Magdalene, who was a former prostitute, and the other Mary, the mother of Jesus, went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came, and he rolled back the stone, and he sat on it. This is the stone that is covering the grave of Jesus. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards, the Roman soldiers, these are seasoned Roman soldiers, trembled, and they became like dead men. They passed out. But the angel said to the women who were standing there, Do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said he would. Come and see the place that he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. Now the rest of this isn't up there. I'm going to finish uh, verses 8 through the end here. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell the disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. Hi. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. And Jesus said, don't be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. Crazy story. It really is. It's an absolutely crazy story. But how did we get here? One of the things that is really easy to do in a sermon like this is to divorce the death of Jesus from the resurrection of Jesus, the events leading up to it. And we don't want to do that this morning. We don't want to separate these two things because they are intimately connected. 
So if you're unfamiliar with the story, the night before Jesus dies, one of his really close friends, his name was Judas Iscariot. So this is one of Jesus's miracles. Somebody sent this to me yesterday, that he was in his 30s and had 12 close friends, okay? That's a big deal. So he's in his 30s, he's got 12 close friends, and one of them, the night before he dies, he actually betrays Jesus. He goes to some men that want to kill him, and for 30 pieces of silver, which, you know, call them 30 silver dollars, 30 bucks, he betrays Jesus into their hands. And they take him, and they put on a mock trial. They bring false evidence against him, none of which was true. He had, had done none of what they had accused him of. Then they savagely beat him. They mocked him. They spit on him. Then they beat him again. Then they put a crown of thorns, large thorns on his head so that it tore his flesh and he bled from his head, which that doesn't heal quickly. So lots and lots and lots of blood. And then they put a a, a cross, the crossbar, the, the centerpiece of the cross on his shoulders and make him carry it up a hill to the place of execution for the Romans, which is Golgotha, the place of the skull where they had been executing people all day long and really for weeks. And then they nailed him to a cross and hung him there between two thieves, unjustly, needlessly, and there he died. He died and he gave up his life, but just to make sure the Romans took a page out of the Wizard of Oz, the Wizard of Oz they wanted to make sure that he wasn't just merely dead, but that he was truly and sincerely dead. So they took a, a spear and they jabbed the spear through his side, piercing all of his major organs and into his heart, and so that there was no possible way that Jesus could be alive. There was no way. He was dead, as dead as dead could be. Period. End of story. His friends take him from the cross and they bury him in a tomb that belonged to a rich man. It was empty. He had prepared it for himself for some day later down the road when he did die and they put Jesus in it. They rolled a large stone in front of it that was so big it took several soldiers to place it there. They put a giant wax seal on it, the seal of Rome, to make sure that there was nobody going in or out of this thing. It was sealed shut. And he was dead, and there he lay. Now for Judas, his friend that betrayed him, this was the biggest mistake of his entire life. His entire life. He'd made mistakes before. He'd stolen money from the disciples. He had been a zealot early on. He had plotted terrorist attacks from what we can tell of his, his character and his nature and his connections from thousands of years ago. But this moment became the moment that defined him. And one that really defined him not just for the rest of his life, but for the next 2,000 years. Because the name Judas today in the English language is synonymous with the word traitor, right? You're a Judas. You've betrayed us. You've given us up. It defined him for the rest of eternity, really, I think. And ultimately, in those moments of grief and guilt, Judas took his life. It led him to his suicide. And as I prepared this message, I I really was caught by Judas. You know, the resurrection is amazing. The death of Jesus is astounding how it all went down. But there's this story of Judas that's left out here out in the the hinterlands. And Christians for the last several centuries have looked at Judas as the traitor, as the betrayer of Jesus, and they have derided him and they've belittled him and they've hated him because he led to the death of Jesus. The Gnostics, however, it was a a cult that propped up in the first century. They really liked Judas. They thought that he was the one that got God's plan going. They're like, God wasn't doing anything, so we're just going to get this thing going and we'll kill Jesus. So they thought he was a good guy. But for most of history, Judas is the bad guy. And as I was preparing, I really felt like, man, not only is Judas left out of this, I get his pain. I understand how he felt. 
See, there was a time in my life where I was so buried in my own sense of failure to reach my own definition of success that I realized one day as I'm driving home how easy it would be to just turn the wheel into oncoming traffic and to end it. Now, that was a moment where I said, whoa, wait a minute. That sort of thought isn't normal, rational, healthy thinking. Something else is going on here. But I understand Judas's moment at the cliff. Literally, Acts says he jumped off of a cliff. Matthew records that he jumped off a cliff and hung himself. He took his life, and I understood that moment. I understood the pull to, to take your life because of the failures and the mistakes that had bound up inside of you, of the pain and the hurt and, the, and the, just all of that stuff. And it's different for all of us, right? It's not, it's not just mistakes for each of us. It's, there's other things. There's been abuse. There's been hurt. There's all kinds of stuff that leaves us in this place of despair. And if the statistics are true, and it, it, as they like, work out across the culture, in this room right now, there are two or three of you who are at that place, like, who have felt the pull of that, of that drive, that cliff to take your own life. And you're there, maybe even there now. And I want to say to you what I wish I could say to Judas. And what I believe Jesus would have said to Judas if he had the chance. Don't give up. Your mistakes, they do not define you. Your failures are not the final word. You are not alone. You matter. Your life could be so much more. There is still hope. I believe there was still hope for Judas. I believe that there was. He gave up too soon. He missed the resurrection. He missed the good news. See, Jesus' death and resurrection, it acts as that yard sign. And to quote Matt Redman, who wrote a song uh, called Nothing But the Blood, he took a hymn and re- rewrote it a little bit. He said this, he said, that Jesus' blood and his death and his resurrection, it speaks a better word than all the empty claims that we hear upon this earth. All of those empty claims and messages that roll around in our head, those empty stories that drive right back here. Jesus' blood, his death and his resurrection speaks a better word to us. And that's what these signs are. First sign says this, your mistakes don't define you. See, many of us hear the voice like Judas did, the voice of accusation saying that your mistakes define you. They are who you are. There is something wrong with you. Like everybody else is normal, but you are not. You are not normal because you can't seem to do everything right. You can't seem to do the things you want to do. In fact, this is how Paul says it. You do the things you do not want to do, and you don't do the things that you do want to do. And if that's not a confusing Bible verse, I don't know which one is. He just like do's and don'ts and do's and don'ts on top of each other. But you get the point. You do the things that you wish you didn't, right? You're like, oh, why did I do that? Why did I say that? Why did I think that? Why is this song going on in my head? And then all those good things you want to do. I want to get up and I want to spend time with God. I I want to make it to church on time this week. Or I I just want to be kind to my next door neighbor today and not a big jerk. And then like, you just don't. That's the world that we live in. We're stuck, some of us, in a loop that we feel like we'll never break free of. You will never live down your mistakes, and you'll likely do worse. But here's the truth. Here's the truth. Because of the death of Jesus, every mistake that you have ever made is paid in full. The life of the Son of God was more than enough to pay for the sins of the entire world, and that includes you. So there is no amount of debt that you could rack up 
in the eyes of God that would overcome the death of Jesus on your behalf. (laughs) Yeah, there you go. There you go. See, the reason that our mistakes feel so powerful and so defining is because they bring death. You know, it might not be a physical death. You just think of a simple mistake. The death comes in the form of disappointment. You know, the, the way your, your, your husband or your wife looks at you after you make a mistake and you hurt them by what you say or what you did or what you failed to do. The way your neighbor looks at you, they're disappointed in you. It's a death. Maybe it's the death of a dream. Maybe it's the death of hopes, possibilities, potential. We lose something that we can't get back, but the death of Jesus put an end to that power. Death does not have power anymore. Psalms 103 says it this way, speaking of the future. David was writing this about the future. He says, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions. That's our mistakes from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Our mistakes could determine not just our past, but our present and our future, but no longer. Now we are defined by God's love and compassion for us. His death removed the power of our mistakes, but his resurrection made it so that no mistake is ever, ever the final answer. The result of our mistakes and failures, the Bible teaches, is death. But death was the final answer for all of us before the cross and before the empty tomb. But it is no more. Because Jesus rose from his dead in his power, we can rise from the ashes of defeat. That is what we just sang. A new path is open to us, a path of life. Our mess-ups, no matter how great or how small, they don't have to determine our future. They don't determine our value. They don't determine our identity because we are now defined by God's love. And that is for everybody, including Judas. He could have been defined by God's love. No matter how great your mistakes are, you are not your mistakes. So would you say this with me? My mistakes don't define me. In Jesus, I am free. Would you say that? My mistakes don't define me. In Jesus, I am free. I hope you believe that. It's like occasional woo-hoos. That's awesome. You know, this is what we need to hear. We need to be able to look in the mirror in the morning. And if I had a mirror for each of you, I'd love for you to look at yourself in the mirror and say this. My mistakes don't define me. And it's not just because I'm a good person. It's not just because I did it right. My mistakes don't define me, define me because of Jesus. In Jesus, I am free. The next sign that we've been putting out says, is you are worthy of love. And that really flies in the face of all the voices of accusation that say, I am damaged goods. There's something intrinsically wrong with me. You know, it's like a car that you buy at the car lot and you, as soon as you drive it off the lot, it breaks down, you know, those cars. And you get that fixed and something else breaks. You know what we call those? Lemons, right? And you could just say, hey, I'm a lemon. Because, again, I do what I do not want to do, and I don't do what I do want to do, and this is my life. I must be a lemon. Yeah, I'm going to make lemonade. That's kind of creepy, Jesse, if, you, if I'm a lemon. I don't know. You might not go that far, but a lot of us live this way. We act as though our performance as a person actually makes us worthy of love. Right? I have been wrestling with this all week, trying to get this thing just perfect, guys, so that I can hear, good job. Thank you. I was literally fishing just now, and you guys, like, 
but this is, this is my MO in life. I want to perform well so that I can hear well done and that my value can be built by that. And this is how we roll as a society. This is how we roll as a society. Our performance makes us worthy of love. If I do well, if I have a great job, if I treat others well, if I'm generally not a jerk, and maybe then maybe I'm worthy of love. But get this, God says that you are worthy of love just as you are. Mistakes, failures, mess-ups and all. You are worthy of love just as you are. Jesus' death gives us a picture of God's love for us. See, the cross shows us just how much God thinks that you are worth. You are worth the price of the life of his son. And not just any old life. We're not talking about a humane euthanasia. We're not talking about a death sentence carried out in America in 2018 with special drugs that may or may not make it nice and easy on somebody. We're talking about brutal, painful, intentional death. It was worth it. You were worth it. Jesus even said it before his death. He said, there is no greater love than a man who lays his life down for another. And that's exactly what Jesus did. One of the first people to ever become a Christian, his name was Paul. And he was a man who hunted Christians. He beat them, he killed them, he persecuted them, he stoned them and laughed while others did. And it was Paul who comes to faith later in his life, and he says it this way, but God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, while we were still a mess, while we still made mistakes, while we hated him, while we derided him, while we abused him, while we rejected him, while we crucified him, while we did all of that, he died for us because he loves us. Because God loves us in Jesus, he has forgiven us for our failures and mistakes. And there is nothing between us. There is no unspoken hurt between you and God. There is no broken relationship. There is no life. There's no, sorry. There's no, there's nothing. There's nothing between you and God but love. But it gets better. That's his just death. His resurrection says that we can now have a relationship with that living God, not a dead one. Have you ever tried having a relationship with a dead thing? Guess what? You all have. How many of you had teddy bears or stuffed animals as kids? It's okay, Phil. You can admit it. Those things aren't alive, right? I hope there's no little kids in the room. Should have warned you on this one. They're not alive. And yet we hold these things dear. We treasure them and we relate to them, right? We pretend like they talk to us and they love us and they care about us. And you know what's so wonderful about them is they never, ever say anything nasty to you, right? I'm a dad. I've been a dad for 16 years, and I have three children. I have yet to have one of them come to me with their teddy bear and said, Mr. Fluffles said something mean to me. You know, it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. It's why we love our pets, right? I can't figure it out with cats. Let's just be honest. Cats, they, they are mean. But dogs, you're like, I blew it today. And he's like, I love you. And you're like, I had a great day. He's like, I love you. It doesn't matter. They don't judge us. They can't hurt us. And in our minds, they love us unconditionally, but it's not real. But God's love is real, and it's alive. We're not relating to some dead wooden idol. We're not relating to stone. We are relating to a living God who loves us and that wants us to actually know him. God's love for us opens the door. His resurrection opens the doorway to a relationship 
His forgiveness maintains that relationship. It's not what starts it. Oh, I'm forgiven. Now I can have a relationship with God. God's like, I've been trying to relate to you all along. I forgive you. And because I'm forgiving you all the time, we can keep relating. Try having a forgi- no forgiveness in a marriage. If two people can't forgive one another in a marriage, you know what happens? Divorce. Yeah, you cannot relate to one another. And that's what God does for us. He says, I forgive you all the time. And so you can relate to me. You can know me. God thinks that you are worthy of love. Unforgiveness always leads to the death of a relationship, but God's forgiveness is for all of us for all time, and it's continually coming at us because God thinks that we're forgivable and that we're worthy and that we matter and that he loves us. So would you say this with me? God has decided I am worthy of love. God has decided I am worthy of love. Man, imagine knowing that every day, every moment. Somebody rejects you, you know? You, 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 hey, you want to go out to coffee tonight? Psst, get away from me, you loser. They say, what's the worst thing that could happen? She can say, no, right? It's not true. She can say, get away from me, you loser. But if you have this in your heart and in your mind, seriously, suddenly that, that rejection doesn't define you. Well, she may not want to love me, but guess what? God does. And God is actually kind of bigger than any one person, isn't he? The third sign is this, you matter. And this one can be a really hard one to believe. Because the voice of accusation says that you're small and insignificant and that you don't matter. And that no one thinks that you'll amount to very much. And that those people who think that are dead on right. No matter what you do, you will never be significant. But the death of Jesus says that we are significant. It gives us significance. Before his death, the Bible says that we were slaves to our mistakes and failures, our sin, our wrongdoings. We really couldn't rise above that because of the power of death that was held over us. And again, we do the things that we don't want to do. We don't do the things that we do want to do. This describes a slave, right? Has no control over what he or she is doing. Just rambling through life, doing exactly what they were told to do. We fail to do what we want to do over and over again. We don't get it. It's like we're not fully in control, but Jesus, with his life, bought our slave contracts. Right? And it used to be that people were property, and they came with a bill of sale. And if you had that bill of sale, you owned that person. Now, as slaves to sin, there's this bill of sale, and with his life, Jesus bought it, and he tore it up, and he changed your status. He said, you are no longer a slave. You're just a free person to choose what you want with your life. You can choose which way you want to go and who you want to be. He left you up for adoption. And he said, you get to choose which family you want to be in. God says, I choose you. I can't imagine what it would be like to be an orphan with no parents and to have a family walk in the door to the orphanage and to walk, you know, you've seen it in the movies. I don't know if it ever happens this way, but the line of kids sitting there and, you know, everybody knows that this, this family's coming today. They're going to adopt somebody today. So everybody get dressed up and clean and clean behind your ears and be on your best behavior and look really cute and get the big puppy dog eyes so that they choose you. You just, you see it in the movies. I just, I just want to be chosen. I can't imagine what it would be like to be chosen like that. But this is the image that the Bible uses for you and I. You are no longer slaves. You are up for adoption. God walks into the room and he says, I choose you. I choose you. 
Will you choose me back? Will you be a part of my family? Will you come in and, and learn to live life in this new family of God? You've been set free. God chooses you. You're no longer an orphan. Now I'm a child of God. God chose me and that makes me significant. That means I matter. Out of all the people of all the world, of all of history, God came to me and said, I choose you, Jamie. And he came to you too and he is coming to you this morning. He chooses you. Growing up, there was always families that seemed to matter a little more than others. I don't know if you ever experienced that in this world, but um, you know the family that owned the car wash. Don't know why. Su- super influential. Had all kinds of money. And everybody kind of you know, wanted to make sure life was a little better for them and did what they wanted. It's families that mattered more, a little more significant. They'd been around longer. They'd run the town. They're the mayor or whatever. And I, my family, we just lived in a trailer down by the river. You know, we weren't, we weren't much of anything. We weren't really, but you know what? It doesn't matter because now I'm a part of the new family of God and my life matters. No one is insignificant. No one matters less. Everyone matters. So would you just declare this with me? I matter and I want to do something with my life for God. I hope this is true of you. Let's say this together. And if you just need to say the first part, that's good. Okay. I hope the rest of this is true. Ready? I matter, and I want to do something with my life for God. Lastly, the last sign is this. You are not alone. The voice of accusation quietly whispers in our minds that you have been abandoned. You have a family sitting in your living room, and yet you sit in your office isolated and alone. You've been through a divorce, and now you find yourself drifting free. You have scores of friends, but nobody seems to really understand you. You're alone. You've been abandoned. No one wants you around. No one wants, uh, wants to be with you. And more than that, no one's in this with you. Because life can be tough. Let's just be honest. It's great. It's wonderful. It's glorious. And it's also painful. Heidi said this week to me, she said, it's like 50-50. It's like half amazing and half hard. It's life. And we feel like no one's in this with us. When I was a kid in Alaska, I would often go out into the woods to play. It was one of the things I loved to do. My parents bought me a Rambo knife. How many of you had a Rambo knife? Yes. There's like four of us. Sandy, did you have your hand up? I'm feeling a little threatened right now. You know what? I want to go camping. Those things were great, right? They had a compass in the stock or the whatever that's called, and you'd open it up, and inside is several useless items, a garret, you know, so that you could choke somebody or a moose or whatever, and two toothpicks and a flint and steel, which nobody could ever make a fire with, right? 1095 plus shipping and handling. So I had this thing, and I'd go out all alone into the woods, down by the river, and I'd be playing, and I'm using this thing as an axe, and I'm using it as all kinds of stuff, and I'm pretending I'm making traps for, you know, whatever enemy is out there. But every now and then, here's the thing that happened, like, I would hear a twig snap. You guys know that moment, that twig snapping moment? Like, there's something indefinable over there. I don't know, maybe I watched too many of the Predator movies or something, you know, or just, rawr, something's going to just like, going to shoot and lasers and there's going to be explosions and I'll be back. I don't know, the whole thing's going to happen. And I like put my Rambo knife into my, and I run like home as fast as I can. I run as fast as I can because I felt so small and so vulnerable and so weak. And I knew that something would pick me off and nobody would ever know and maybe even nobody would ever care. 
That's the You're All Alone song. That's that feeling that you get, that vulnerable, weak feeling. And it comes at us when we least expect it. Somebody's talking to us, and they say something completely innocuous, and suddenly you just feel that vulnerability inside. You feel alone and isolated. God gets that. The cross tells us that God understands what it's like to be all alone. Because on the cross, as Jesus takes on the sin of the world, he is separated from God his Father, who he has walked with so intimately, daily walking in the steps that he sees his Father walking in, hearing and speaking and living in his presence all the time. And on the cross, suddenly the weight of the sin comes on him, and God turns his back on Jesus in this moment because he can't bear to look at the sin anymore. And Jesus cries out, God, my most intimate Father, Papa, why have you forsaken me? God knows what it's like to be all alone. Jesus was betrayed and abandoned by his friends, and even his connection with his father was cut off, so he gets feeling alone. But when Jesus went to the cross, he died not just to pay for our mistakes, sins, and failures, but another image that's given to this is the fellowship offering. In the Old Testament, Exodus 29, God promises to dwell amongst his people forever. He says, you guys are going to have your camps, your tents, because that's what they lived in, and I'm going to be in the middle of it, and I'm going to live in the middle of this thing, and here's what we're going to do is every day, so that you remember I'm here, that you remember I'm a part of this thing, I want you to come into my tent, my house, and, and bring with you a lamb, and we want you to sacrifice and cook that lamb and eat it together in the morning and in the evening. It's making breakfast and dinner for God every day. This is what they did. On the cross, Jesus becomes our fellowship offering with God. The night before he was betrayed, he's sitting with his disciples. It's the tall 12 of them. Even Judas was there in this moment. And Jesus takes bread and he breaks it. And he hands it around to him. He says, this is my body, which is going to be broken for you. And then he takes a cup of wine. And he says, this is my blood, which is spilled for you. Eat this and remember me. Now, if you think about it, that's like the craziest thing you're ever going to say. He's sitting right there, right? If I did this with you, it was like, hey, here's a stick of gum. Remember me. You'd be like, you're just sitting right there. And Jesus is sitting right there. The disciples are like, wait a minute. This is the fellowship offering that he's talking about. This is that every morning dinner and, and breakfast with God. Jesus becomes our fellowship offering. He's foreshadowing his own death and his sacrifice for us. And he's saying, remember, I am with you. God is with you. But the story doesn't stop at his death. It continues to the resurrection. His death becomes a connection between us and God. But his resurrection shows us there's nothing that can ever, ever separate us from him. He overcomes death. And in his power, we no longer live, need to live with God among us. We need, no longer does God live in a tent. No longer does God have to dwell in a body and walk beside us as in Jesus. But because of his death and resurrection, it opened the door for God to live in us. To be dwelling intimately in our hearts. I can live in you. And in in your deepest self can be God's home. You can share life with him, breakfast and dinner, but also lunch and afternoon snacks and, you know, right after school snacks and that little piece of gum you have in the middle of the day. And every time you take a moment of quiet and you just quiet yourself and you remember that he's there, God is with you in every moment. In the chaos of your work and in the middle of your divorce and in the, the middle of your pain, God is with you. You are not alone. So one last time, I wonder if you would challenge the voice of accusation in your mind with me by saying this, 
I am not alone. Everywhere I go, there God is. Would you say that with me? I am not alone. Everywhere I go, there God is. Worship team, would you guys come up?